Welcome to the Sunday Worship Podcast, where we explore the questions of Sunday worship and why we gather to worship God in the ways that we do. Whether you are a new Christian or have been following Christ your whole life, our prayer is that you will glean something from these conversations to help propel you towards a deeper intimacy and understanding of who God is and why we worship our God with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. I'm your host, John Rowe. And I'm the worship director here at New Life Church in Ann Arbor, Michigan. I'm joined today by Pastor Kyle Chase. He and I have been friends for about 14 years now, and I've gleaned so much from his life. Kyle is one of those people that naturally sharpens you. He's intuitive, artistic, and playful, which makes him a perfect guest for our show today on the communion table. We are going to discuss what communion is, why we do it, and how a regular rhythm of going to the table can draw us closer to deeper intimacy in our worship of God. So Kyle, welcome to the Sunday Worship Podcast. How are you doing today? Hey, this is exciting, John. Thanks for inviting me on. I'm doing well. Great, great. Thanks for being here today. We're talking about communion. We're both very passionate about this worship practice and Before we dive into the what, the why, how of communion, we like to start a little personal here on the Sunday Worship Podcast. So why don't you start by talking about how the communion table has impacted your own walk with Christ? Well, when I start at communion, it it kind of feels like approaching scripture to me. So I've read the Bible. I've read... Uh, that's good. Read it many times. Yeah. And no matter how many times I read it, there's always something new. There's something more, there's something fresh in it. Yes. And communion feels that way to me. This very simple picture that I can't reach the bottom of it. I can't, I can't reach the end of it. Yeah. And of course I have my stories of going to churches that practice communion differently over time, um, that, uh, have my own sort of pragmatic experiences with communion and the way that people practice it that have impacted me over time as well. But that's kind of a different. Yes. We've, uh, I know I've had those as well where I I think if you're listening to this, maybe you've had many different experiences or maybe just it's been one singular experience, but there are many worship or communion practices with worship. And so we're going to explore some of that today. Um, before we kind of dive into that a little bit, look, just a personal story for me, just on the communion table. Uh, I, I've had a lot of, I've had a long journey with the Eucharist or the communion table. And for me, uh, so I, I've had these ebbs and flows and there's, I'm in this season right now where when I go to the table, it's, it's a way to be seen. And there was, um, this amazing moment. And I don't even think this person even realized what they did, but, uh, at new life, usually the worship team, they, they come around those that are leading the music. We, we receive together, uh, after the service while we're serving. And then we can, uh, commune together as a team. And someone who was serving that morning saw us all and just came up and served us. And it was, like it just for me personally, it was like this amazing moment where they recognize, Hey, here's a set of people who have been serving the church, uh, during the service. And they're like, this is my opportunity to serve them. And, um, it just grabbed me right away. And I was like humbled that someone would think of us in that way. Yeah. And, and I mean, I hear, ahead. I hear gratitude in that too, which is intriguing to me because you started by saying one of the stories about the Eucharist. So just for our listeners, uh, you know, Eucharist comes from the Greek, which means to give thanks. Jesus gives thanks before the bread, before he breaks the bread and hands it to his disciples. But we also talk about communion here Mm -hmm. in New Life Church, another word of this communal act. And then um, you'll also see in scripture in 1 Corinthians 11, which we may get to today, um, where Paul refers to as the Lord's Supper. So all of those things we're kind of using interchangeably. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. I guess that's a great launching point here. So why don't we dive in here with what is communion? Kyle, you can dive in here. I'm sure we're going to go in a lot of different directions here today. So everyone strap in. 
uh, we're, buckle your seatbelts. We're going on a, on a long windy road. Uh, so at new life, what is communion? And I'd love to hear your thoughts on what we believe. And then we're probably going to dive into what some other churches and communion communion experiences are as well. And what we see there. So what is communion, Kyle? Specifically at new life. You're yeah. Asking. Yeah. So at new life, what you can expect is you'll hear the sermon and it's important for us in every sermon to preach the gospel message. And it, it really points to and culminates with the table and an invitation from the speaker or, or someone else in the church to uh, have people in the congregation come to the table. And so the, the speaker will say something uh, to help us remember what Jesus did on the night that he was betrayed, the night before he died, when he took bread and broke it, and gave it to his disciples. And then he took the cup of wine after supper and told him to drink from that as well. And so we remember that moment and then we invite people to the table. And so when you're walking up to the table, we, we want that to be a worshipful experience, but it's not meant or intended to be a sort of just by yourself experience. It's, it's intended to be a communal moment. So we want someone at the table to serve you, to, uh, to be there with you because we don't take communion as a church. We, we give and receive it. It's a gift. We give and receive communion. So you come to the table, someone will be there uh, as a kind of a host for that, that little meal and will serve you the bread and remind you this is the body of Christ given for you. And then we'll offer you the little cups of juice and, and say, this is the blood of Christ poured out for you. I mean, hopefully at New Life, it's something like what Jesus yes. is instituting, yes. right? And uh, if I'm candid, I think there's ways that it could be more that, mm-hmm. more that way than it is now. Um, <clears throat> but it's been a road for us as a church of, of, of discovering what does it mean for us. We don't have any kind of doctrinal paper about this, um, but... What we're really looking at is this very simple moment you see in um, the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, when Jesus is celebrating the Passover feast with his disciples. Mm-hmm. And right, the Passover feast, in short, is Israel remembering their salvation out of slavery in Egypt and celebrating as a memorial that, that deliverance, that salvation. But Jesus is eating that feast with his disciples, celebrating the Passover, and then he does something new with it. Yes. Um, uh, maybe new isn't even the right way to say it exactly. He's, it's almost like he fulfills it. He, he takes it to its true meaning. Um, spring I mean, I off. would say it's new. He's, this is the new covenant. It's new. It's definitely new. Uh, but it's not as if he said, hey, this thing that we've been doing uh, as faithful Jewish people is gone and now we're going to do this other right. thing. It's, right. it's more like he took something that was very meaningful and he, he, he took it to a meaning that no one anticipated. Right. And so that, that moment of at the communion table, he, he, he takes the bread, he gives thanks, he breaks it, he gives it. He says, this is my body given for you. Mm-hmm. Take and eat, do this in remembrance of me. Uh, in other places, as often as you, you gather together as often as you eat together, do this in remembrance of me. And then after the supper, he took the cup of wine. He said, this is my, uh, my blood um, and the new covenant poured out to take away your sins, poured out for the remission of sins and drink all of it. So this is the, the thing that he commands his disciples to do. And so for us at New Life Church, we're thinking, well, what does it mean for us to do that as often as we gather together? Because we used to do to, to, to give and receive communion sporadically in our right. services or maybe once a month. Right. Um, but now we do it every time we gather on Sunday because of that. Yeah. Um, uh, not even to be legalistic about it, but just to honor the heart and the spirit of that. Um, we want to remember Jesus in this way that he taught us every single week. Uh, and it's not just limited to that. It's, it's home groups. It's other ways that we can gather. Yeah. People can, can share the bread I mean, and the juice. I mean, you mentioned earlier how you know, you've read through the Bible multiple times and something sticks out to you differently or like something speaks to you in a, in a new way each time you read through the scriptures. And going to the table is the same thing. Um, it's an experience uh, that 
can, it, it deepens us. It deepens our understanding of who God is. And when we more regularly do it, I remember when we were shifting our practice of just occasionally doing it, our, our regular practice was just once a month. And there are a lot of churches that do that. And the big pushback was, oh, I don't want this experience to be diminished. I don't want it to be, uh, I don't want to lose sight of what this means. And, and it was like, and our, you and I, we were both pushing back on this, uh, where we were saying, uh, no, this is actually gonna, uh, make your communion experience even deeper, even, even more. And we're going to both have a deeper understanding of, of what the gospel is and what Jesus has done for us. Well, well, right. And in, you know, ritual, uh, is, is formational just to going through the habit is, is formational. You've been a vi- big advocate for that, but also a big advocate for, let's not just have this be a ritual, but let's have this be a ritual right. that is new for us every Sunday, mm-hmm. fresh for us every Sunday, where we're, we're connecting the meaning of what we're doing to it every Sunday. Um, so that, that it never just becomes a sort of, uh, uh rote background tradition for right. us. And John, as a worship director, I love, I mean, I love that you, you don't just think about worship as let's get up and sing some songs on Sunday, but you think about, and even your personal study, how's the church been worshiping for thousands of years? And there's something about the table that's like, Hey, whatever denomination you are, wherever you are in in your, in your walk with Christ, this is in some form, the church global is gathering around the table to remember what Jesus said and what he did. Yeah. So this is an an eternal event in that we are become a part of the communion, uh, even of the Trinity, how the Holy Spirit is is beckoning us to the communion table because of what Christ did on the cross. And then we also experience what, who is, who Christ is, uh, our great high priest interceding before the Father on behalf of us, but also that we might understand his passion and his longing for restoration in our world. And, uh, and so when we go to the communion table, we start to experience that mystery. And, uh, and it's, it's something it's, it's hard to explain, but it's something that we have to experience over and over again. Yeah. And you just mentioned a ton of huge ideas. Yes, there's a lot there <laughs> about the Trinity, about about Jesus as the great high priest, about the spirit drawing us uh, that somehow communion, you know, theologians talking about communion being outside of time eternal, which is an important distinction. Outside of time is not the same as a really long time. Right. Um, it's a moment that you're completely lost in that you're not aware of time because it's there's something happening there. So but yeah. but it seems like your initial point without delving into any of those grandiose mysteries is that it is mysterious what's happening there yes. at the community table. Yes. And that mystery for two millennia now, uh, within the church universal has driven a lot of worship within the church, um, and has even caused divisions in the church. Uh, we have a lot of different ways that we, uh, that other churches worship, uh, through the communion table. But, um, I want to dive into this mystery piece and Kyle and I have talked about this before that the mystery of communion and the communion table is a discipline and how we can, uh, as a church engage with that. And there's other, uh, denominations and churches that worship differently. And I wonder if you, Kyle, can like expound on how we can engage in that well and also look at what other churches, how they worship with some of their beliefs around the communion table. All right. I'll start into that big question. And then I have a question for you. Yeah. So um, if you think about liturgical traditions, many liturgical traditions, but, but primarily Catholicism, we're thinking about things like transubstantiation, where there's this attempt to explain how does the bread and the wine physically at an atomic level change into the the body of Christ Mm -hmm. after being blessed and consumed. Um, And 
And so there's sort of a wildness of like, let's try to explain scientifically what's happening there. But then in the Protestant Reformation, uh, Protestant denominations have kind of reacted to that sometimes to an extreme, not, not, not everyone holds it the same way, but, but sometimes we can go to the opposite extreme of saying, like, we just want to be clear with you as you get ready to come to the communion table. This is just a symbol. This is just a symbol. There's nothing mysterious about this. It's just a symbol. Uh, And, and I think both of those things error in a very similar way. Right. In, in that it, it, it's an attempt to over explain a very simple thing that is actually very profound right. that, that scripture doesn't actually explain that much. Mm-hmm. So if Jesus says, this is my body, right? He doesn't say, Hey, this represents my body. Some translations will say that, but in the Greek, it doesn't say that. It doesn't say this, this is a symbol for my body or a symbol for my blood. It says, this is my body. Yep. This is my blood. But he also doesn't try to, exp- he's clearly handing bread and wine to his disciples. Yep. Right. Yes. So, uh, there is, there's, there's some mystery there. And what does this mean? And Mm -hmm. people try to explain that. So I would just, I would, I would encourage people wondering about that, feeling awe about that, but I would probably discourage them from trying to, to over mechanize that or explain it, uh, either to take away its mystery, you know, in, in one of those two directions. Right. Uh, so I have a question for you based mm-hmm. on that. Yeah. So my question for you then is without trying to over explain communion, can we just get a baseline for what is this practice and what does it mean? Like I want a baseline. So you named a lot of really big things. There's a lot of places this could go, but let's just give us a starting point, John. What does this practice mean? What is the baseline? I'd say the baseline is that Jesus gave us this practice to regularly understand what he did on the cross, that we're regularly going back to that. And he used the most simple thing that we do every day, which is eat. We have to eat. That the gospel is what we have to eat every day. Okay, I love that. And and so, it, like... For me, and I think for all of us in our church community and whoever is listening, like we want to be a people that we are regularly going back to what Christ did. That it doesn't matter what we're, if, if we're talking about whatever random thing that we're preaching on on Sunday, let's go back to the gospel. What does the gospel say about that? And that is why, that's the baseline that we need to start from. That all right, bread, one of the most simple things to find anywhere in the world. And all right, this is the body of Christ that was broken for me. Okay. I love that. Blood of Christ poured out for me. Yeah. And, and, and new life, Jesus is our message. We have a a practice. Uh, when we preach every Sunday, we, we want to share the gospel every Sunday. We want to offer the good news, not just good advice. So we want to do that in the sermon, but, but we also are kind of, we're, we're doubling down on that with the communion table. This is about coming back to the gospel, mm-hmm. who Jesus is and what he's done and how he is literally in that moment, even impacting our life. Like eating is an intimate thing. Right. You are taking something from without and putting it into your body. And Jesus yeah. is, is taking the things that he did and symbolizing it. And like you said, this very common act, eating, coming to the table, not this ritualistic or religious thing in that moment, but uh, we're gathering around a table together, eating a meal, and while we're doing that, also remember my body, yeah. remember my blood. Yeah. Do this. Do this again yeah. and again. So let's talk about, though, let's get a little bit more into what that what that means. So I, I'm a fan of, I think the, the kind of things that you're sharing right now are very orthodox, like pre- <laughs> I mean, like, I mean, like in the Eastern Orthodox, yes. like pre-schism, uh, Catholic Orthodox church in you know, 1000, whatever it was. And, and, uh, and you have this very Orthodox idea of taking things that are common at the communion table mm-hmm. and making them sacred. So this, this, the common elements of bread and wine becoming the sacred thing. And that, that as we take that into ourselves and we go about our lives, the idea is that, that God is, is expanding 
the sacred into all the world, right. right? Church is not meant to be a separate thing from the world. This communion table isn't really meant to be a separate thing from a meal. It, right. it, it's, it's supposed to be something that spills over like God is expanding the bounds of the Garden of Eden into all the world to transform it, to make it more what he intended it to be at the beginning of time. So that, to me, that's like a very orthodox Christian idea. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, and it's, this is not separate from that, but I, 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 I love going back and rooting this into the, the sort of Jewish faith because that's, that's where they were. That's what they were practicing. That was the launching point. Yeah. So I, I want to talk about that for a little bit. Can we talk about that? Go for it. So what do you, so what do you see at the communion table that is like, why did, why the Passover feast? He's doing this at the Passover feast It's a specific feast. So can you just talk about what is the Passover feast? And why do you think Jesus is instituting it there? I mean, on a baseline, that is the redemptive story for Israel prior to the New Testament period. That is, that's the moment. Yeah, tell and, us the story, short form. Tell us the story. Short form. Uh, I mean, <laughs> Kyle's putting me on the spot here. Uh, <laughs> uh, short form, uh, the people of Israel were uh, enslaved in Egypt and God had sent some plagues onto Egypt and the last plague, which was the uh, angel of death was gonna come over the land of Egypt um, and the angel of death would pass over your house if you had put lamb's blood over your door. And most, if not all the Hebrew people did that, none of the Egyptians did or a few of them did and most of the firstborn in Egypt were killed. Yeah. So it's kind of like you were telling this story. That's kind of this interesting story. And all of a sudden you, so you just said something bizarre and true, but bizarre. Yeah. So I want to go back to it. So, uh, right. God is sending the plague because he wants Pharaoh to let his people go. And, and then Pharaoh's heart is hard. He will not let the Hebrew people go. So this last plague, death of the first firstborn, uh, that angel, that destroying angel coming through all of Egypt um, and taking the life of every firstborn Egyptian son. And uh, and the interesting thing about that is that he's also going through the camp of Israel. Right. Right. It's not like he just say, he could just send it, could just send the destroying angel through Egypt, but not through the Israelite right. camp, camp, Israelite camp. But he's going to send it through there too. And, and, and he's like, but, but I'm going to give you a way to be saved from death. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and it's not, it's not magic words. It's you take an unblemished lamb and you slaughter it and you take uh, the blood from the lamb and you, you wipe it over your doorpost as a sign Mm -hmm. to this destroying angel. And it will pass over your house, which is where the, the word Passover refers to. And then, and then that's going to be the way that you're saved. From death. Okay, right. so that that part's bizarre, right? Yes. Uh, and and then this this happens. Uh, God rescues His people uh, out of slavery in Egypt. This is the plague that kind of breaks Pharaoh's back, and then He brings brings Israel out. But then He tells them in Exodus chapter twelve, "I want you to remember this day." Yes. Uh, the Hebrew word is zakar. Zakar. Okay. Remember call to mind, uh, not just personally for you, but for every generation uh, on, on, what is it? The, the 14th day of the month in the, in, what is it in the spring? It's the Hebrew month. I don't know offhand, but, um, on that day, they're celebrating the Passover. They're remembering what God did. And then he tells them how to celebrate it. He says, you need to have a lamb that's roasted, not boiled. And you need to have unleavened bread. We don't, I want you to eat this while you are fully dressed, belt fast and ready to go. Like this yeah. is not a, it's, it's like you're getting ready to go. Right. So we don't have time for the bread to rise. It's unleavened bread, roasting the lamb. We're not boiling it. Um, you're going to, you're going to eat this lamb with some bitter herbs, which, which Jews came to interpret as to represent the bitterness of slavery. Um, the lamb is remembering that, that salvation moment. Um, now they've added other things to that meal, but, but in Exodus 12, that's what you see. Yeah. You don't see wine then Mm -hmm. 
you don't see the 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 sort of uh, sweet um, kind of uh, substance that's meant to represent the the mud bricks mm-hmm. of, that the slaves made in Egypt. So there's a lot of things that that come later in the Passover feast that would have been there when Jesus is celebrating that aren't there in Exodus 12. But but you're right. So that's the story, right? And where it starts. So why does Jesus choose that moment, that Passover feast, to do this? instead of like the feast of Sukkot or yeah, you know, some other feast. Yeah. I mean, it's the pivotal one to me. Like Passover is, it's the pinnacle of how the people of Israel worshiped. And so Jesus was doing something there. So he's identifying, he's he's identifying with rescue, with deliverance. Yeah. He's going to rescue and deliver them from sin and death the way that something like that, yeah. the way that Israel was delivered from, yeah. from death and slavery. Um, so then uh, I was recently in Toronto visiting some of our missionary friends. We sent out to Toronto to, to do some church planning and they asked a question. I'll ask you the question. Uh, if this is connected to the Passover feast, which it is clearly in scripture, why does Jesus identify his body with the bread at the feast and not with the lamb? Because elsewhere in John, it says Jesus is the lamb of God. Right. Who takes away the sins of the Mm -hmm. world. So clearly Jesus is the lamb theologically in other spaces, but in the moment, the communion table, there's lamb on that table. Um, It doesn't say that explicitly in the new Testament, but we can assume that if it's the Passover feast. Yep. Um, and Jesus identifies his body with the bread, not with the lamb. Why? I don't know, Kyle. That's a great question. <laughs> well, what do you think? Um, <laughs> I'm sorry. Did you, you wanted me to ask you questions, right? Uh, right. Yeah. Uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I would probably say it's because Jesus was doing something new. Okay. See, that's what my friend said. I mean, he's clear. This is the new covenant. So no longer do we need this lamb. I, Jesus, am this new covenant. All right. That could be true. Because we don't, it doesn't, it doesn't spell this out for us. Right. So we're, we're wondering about this a little bit right now. Right. Um, I have a wondering too about this, which I will now share with yes. you. Okay. Uh, so as we were having this conversation, that, that was what we kept coming back to is, well, Jesus is doing something new. So maybe he's just departing from the Passover narrative. Mm-hmm. But if that's true, why is he doing this at Passover? Like why, why then what's the connection between the story? And, and so here's, here's what we kind of came to after, hours of delightful discussion is is it's not actually the lamb that saves Israel from death it's the blood of the lamb Hmm. it's the blood of the lamb that saves them from death and and the blood is already represented in the cup it'd be redundant to then identify with the bread but we have another story in the Exodus narrative that connects to the bread and it's when they've been released from slavery, they're in the desert, they're wandering in the wilderness with God, but they're hungry. And day after day, God feeds them with bread from heaven. Yes. With manna. And Jesus later, and we can come to this, identifies as, as the bread from heaven, the true bread from heaven. So there's something new even in communion for me as I come to the table in remembering that when I, when I drink from the cup, I'm remembering that once for all time, God saved me from sin and death when he poured out his blood for me on the cross, Mm. purchased my freedom and forgave my sins. And every time I take and eat of that bread, I remember that he is my sustenance every single day in the wilderness between that moment of salvation to the day he brings me home. Mm. He was enough in that moment and he's enough every single day. So to me, it's the whole story of the Exodus and the wilderness journey on the way to the promised land being fulfilled in Jesus and represented 
in a mysterious way at the communion table every single week. Yeah. You use a great word there, sustenance. And when we're talking about communion, uh, we go back to the gospel regularly because that is the sustenance. And you mentioned the, um, uh, the manna, is it in Exodus 12? 16, Exodus 16. 16. Um, and how there were people that went to get more than they needed for the day. Right. And it's like, no, I get what you need for this day. And because you will need to regularly go back to me for sustenance, for provision. And, uh, and that's a beautiful picture to me. Yeah. And let's, let's, let's sit in that moment for a second. Yeah. Because if you, if you read Exodus 16 closely, people are grumbling, they're complaining, they're hungry. God ordains food for them. But like you said, he's like, you get enough for the day. So gather only as much as you need. Mm -hmm. And, and not more than you need. And tomorrow I'll give you some more. Yeah. And then the one exception is, is the day before the Sabbath, he's going to give you, he's going to, he tells you take twice as much as you need. Cause on the Sabbath day, none yeah. will come for you. Yeah. And that's, you'll have enough for those two days. And the reason is, so the, the thing that's fascinating to me about that is that God isn't just interested in feeding his people. He obviously wants to feed them, but, mm. but what he, what he's trying to do is to get them to hang on his words. Yeah. Uh, and we, we get a, like a concise picture of that in Deuteronomy eight and he says, uh, he, he led you in the desert. He did this to, to, to humble you and to test you, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So I think if you look at Exodus and Deuteronomy and specifically the, the Exodus 16, Deuteronomy eight, you start to see this intertwining, and this is going to bring us into some special places in the New Testament. Mm-hmm. You, you, you see this intertwining of obedience to the word of God and receiving the bread and the breaking of the bread. Yes. Okay. Yes. You feel me? I've, I'm feeling you. Yeah. So I, Keep let's, going. I want us to follow that line of thinking into two places in particular. I know you're excited to talk about Luke 24, disciples on the road to Emmaus. We could explain that. Yeah. I'd be excited to talk about it for John chapter six when he says, I am the bread of life. Um, so do you want to do that one first? No, let's, I, well, I was going to, I think we should dive into, to John okay. because, uh, that's your name. Yes. That's yes. okay. spelled differently. Yes. True. Um, and I don't refer to myself as the apostle that Jesus loved, uh, <laughs> over and over again. Uh, but, uh, so for newer Christians, uh, maybe older Christians, even, uh, we only have an account of communion in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John, the Gospel of John, does not have an account of uh, communion. However, however, uh, yeah. uh, you've heard us use this word mystery over and over again, and how um, uh, it's a consuming aspect of how we live and breathe and even go to the table. And, uh, I'll let Kyle dive into this a little bit more and how we get into John chapter six and Jesus calling himself the bread of life. And I'll let him take away from here. Yeah. So at the beginning of John chapter six, you have these masses, these crowds following Jesus and he feeds, he feeds all of them, right? He multiplies the bread, the loaves and, and he feeds them. And then the next day he's, he's across the sea of Galilee and the people follow him and they follow him for a very specific reason. They're hungry. Mm -hmm. And you see these references in the latter parts of John chapter six, where they started to grumble, which should immediately make you think of Exodus chapter 16 because they're in a wilderness. They want bread. They're hungry. And they're even quoting from Exodus chapter 16 and they're saying, Moses gave us bread from heaven. So give us some bread, essentially. Uh, And then that's when Jesus begins to correct him. And he says, I tell you, it wasn't Moses that gave you the bread from Mm -hmm. heaven. It's your heavenly father. And I am the true bread that comes down from heaven. And then they start to wonder about that. Like, yeah, well, you know, give us some bread. You know, like, they're just like, please give us bread. Uh, Can we be clearer? Bread, please. And 
Get and, that bread. And then get that bread. Yeah. And then Jesus just keeps pressing into this teaching until he starts to say, I'm the true bread. So eat my flesh and drink my blood yeah. and you will live. So then they're like, dark uh, words from Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> right. Like there, there were people who saw the early Christians talking about this kind of stuff and thought that they were cannibals. Yeah. Because they're talking about eating the flesh of Jesus and they didn't had no concept for this. Um, I think this John six passage is the close is as close as we get to a communion passage in the gospel of John mm -hmm. where we see that language and he doubles down because they asked him, how can we eat your flesh, drink your blood? And he's like, my flesh is true food. My blood is true drink. Notice the absence of, Hey, I just mean this symbolically. Yeah. Right. Like notice the absence of that. Uh, and notice the absence of him, like explaining how this works. He's just like, eat my flesh, drink my blood. So at this point, a lot of people leave. Mm -hmm. And that's the kind of famous moment where he turns to his disciples and says, do you want to leave too? And Peter says, to whom shall we go, Lord? You have the words of eternal life. Yeah. And, uh, and so I think when I sit in the midst of that story, it's hard for me to tell how would people have viewed this? What would right. they have done with this? I think I would have been like, I don't understand what yeah. you want us to do. <laughs> yes. Like, like, it, like, does someone in that crowd come up and just start gnawing on his arm? Like, he was like, hey, I'm going to take a step of faith here. Let's just see what will happen. I'm just going to wing it. Right. I don't think so. I, it would have been hard to know. But if you look at the theology of John, it begins to, to become a higher resolution kind of photo of what Jesus mm -hmm. is doing. Now, think back to John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, talking about Jesus. The Word was with God. The Word yes. was God. John 1.14, the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The word became flesh, made his dwelling among us. And that same word who became flesh and made his dwelling among us, Jesus said, eat my flesh, yeah. drink my blood. I am the bread of life. Yes. And what do we remember? Deuteronomy 8, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. I think what Jesus is communicating is exactly what Peter is taking away. Yeah. I have and am the word of life. Yeah. And you need to take me in. Yeah. You need to manifest me. You need to embody what it is that I am saying and doing and, and become that. Yeah. Like me. Yeah. Um, there's, again, something very intimate, a connection between the bread and the word. Uh, and, and, and so there was, I remember, I still remember that the day that that kind of jumped out at me, it changed the way I do communion. Because when I, I come to the communion table, I think about, God, what is the word that you have for me today to obey? How can I yeah. obey you? Yes. Um, so connection between the word and the bread. Yeah. Yes. I love that. Simultaneously. Well, not simultaneously. Another connection point for us in scripture with what we're talking about. And maybe as we've had this conversation, uh, what we're talking about might be, a little hazy might be going over your head a little bit. And I love what happens in Luke 24. It's a famous story. Jesus has risen from the grave and he suddenly appears to two men who are walking on the road to Emmaus and they're relaying Jesus plays dumb for a moment and relays. And so these two men are, relaying the events that have happened and everyone's talking about it. And then Jesus starts to bring the scriptures alive to them. And they still don't understand that it's Jesus walking with them. Yeah. They say, haven't you heard ha yeah. about what's happened? Yeah. yeah. In these last few days. And so he's bringing the scriptures alive to them. He's talking about all these things that Jesus fulfilled. And then they invite well, him. Can you just back up for just yeah, one yeah, second? Yeah, go for it. Because these, these two are walking to Emmaus, which is away from Jerusalem. Uh -huh. and they're walking away from this holy city, and they're in mourning because they thought Jesus was going to be right. the Savior, but he died. And yeah. so Jesus, in a form they can't recognize, is walking with them, and they say, haven't you heard about these things? And can we just enjoy that Jesus' response to them is, what things? Yes. Tell me. Tell me more. Tell me more. Okay, go on. So he does all of that. And then 
they invite Jesus into their home and then, and they break bread. And once he breaks bread in the way he does, like he did for communion, that's when their eyes are opened, Mm -hmm. says in verse 30, as they sat down to eat, he took the bread and blessed it. Then he broke it and gave it to them. Suddenly their eyes are open and they recognized him. Mm-hmm. And at that moment he disappeared. <laughs> <laughs> That's but Jesus. It, it's in that moment of going to the table where we can recognize Jesus. And there might be the things that we've been talking about today. There might be a lot of mystery or it, it's a, a difficult thing to understand over and you will over time, the more that we go to the table and it's at the table where we recognize Jesus. And, and, and name the connection there. If you read the next verse in 32, so after he was revealed to them and yeah. then vanished from their sight, it says, they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he yes. talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures. Yeah. So again, we see, it's the word right. and the bread kind of woven together that there's, I think that's a really important thing, right? Yeah. Because we're in a, we're in a tradition that is, that, that puts a lot of emphasis on scriptures mm-hmm. and teaching the scriptures. Mm-hmm. There are other traditions that, that put a lot of emphasis on experiencing spiritual presence of God through yep. the work of the spirit. There's traditions that put a lot of emphasis on, the, the rituals and liturgies that you walk through. And we want to really see all those woven together in our right. church and in our worship because they're all scriptural. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I love that here you see those, you see like those things happening. There's some weird spiritual right. thing happening here that we don't quite explain where you can't recognize Jesus, then you can, then he disappears. You see the the almost traditional piece of we're coming back to the bread and we're breaking mm-hmm. it. We're doing this action, but then you see the scriptures being opened. Right. And it's all right there at the table. And I, I love that. Like it is. And back to this regular practice of going to the table. It's like, yes, the scriptures were coming alive. They were, they were understanding things. And then also once he breaks the bread, now there's an understanding like it, it's like their their heart and their mind suddenly came together and figured it out for a brief moment. That's a good way to say it because you started this podcast by talking about what does it mean to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Yes. And so what we are, we're seeing something in a picture that is, that is cognitively sort of uh, enlightening and interesting and insightful, mm-hmm. but is like on a, a visceral heart level is, is emotional. Like mm. you did this for me. Yeah. You came for me. You poured out your blood for me. You gave your body and, and it was, it was given up for me. Uh, so I, I love that you're, you're seeing, you're kind of bringing those things together. So I want to switch gears here a little bit and um, talk about some of the postures that we have that we go as we approach the communion table. And before we kind of dive into that a little bit, um, we want to be clear uh, with you and our belief of uh, the communion table is that this the communion table is not the saving act what Jesus did on the cross is the saving act. Totally. Absolutely. He is what he did on the cross is our source. It's the basis of our faith and how he died on the cross for our sins, rose again three days later. And the communion act is act. The communion act of worship is 
how we celebrate and how we remember that. Um, it's uh, a little funny to me that Jesus gave us that act of worship in communion right before he went to go uh, to the cross. Yeah. Uh, um, but it's, uh, so we want to be clear in that. Um, but I've heard uh, from people in our, different people in our con- congregation, I've had different conversations with people. Um, what are some good postures uh, or things to have in mind as I approach the communion table? And uh, the Apostle Paul really lays out a couple of good things in 1 Corinthians 11. So, uh, Kyle, why don't you expound yeah, a little bit on that? I'll start on that, and you can kind of bring yep. it home with some some uh, principled kind of postures in approaching the table. This passage, 1 Corinthians 11, starting in verse 17 and, and going through verse 34, I'm not going to read it all here right mm-hmm. now, but Paul is uh, basically is addressing uh, factions and, and divisions that are happening within the Corinthian church. And one of them is 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 that whenever they come together to, to eat, he says, it's not the Lord's Supper that you're eating, because when you eat, one of you goes ahead and eats his own meal, the other one goes hungry, and another one gets drunk. Yep. He says, what, do you not have houses to eat and drink in, or do you despise the church of God that you would humiliate those who have nothing? And so... You have this group of people who's kind of coming in the house, eating up all the meal and the, and the communion elements, and, and, and then there's others who are left outside and left hungry. They don't get anything. So Paul kind of takes them through uh, the communion message again and what mm-hmm. Jesus says the night before he dies, and then he says, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. So let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. And so he kind of goes on and then says, my brothers, when you come together, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment about the other things. I will give directions when I come. It kind of ends up his section of the letter. But the thing that I want to highlight here is that that churches will use this passage to restrict people from the table. Um, and I, I think it's well-intentioned. There's, uh, there's How so? So here, here's what I mean. So churches will use this passage and say, hey, look, so in the Catholic Church, you have to be confirmed as a Catholic, have to go through sort of your, mm-hmm. your, your, your various rites of passage um, before you're allowed to receive your first communion. And um, I think I have that right. But yeah. it's something like that. There's a, there's a process where you can, as a, a member of the Catholic Church, receive communion. And if you're not a member of the Catholic Church, it doesn't matter if you've been following Jesus your whole life and you're passionate about the scriptures, you want to follow him. None of that matters. You cannot come to receive communion, generally speaking. You can come up for a blessing uh, of some sort, yeah. but you may not receive the elements and the communion elements. And I think the heart of that is well-intentioned. It says, we don't want you to drink judgment on yourself and mm-hmm. eat and drink judgment on yourself or take the body and blood in an unworthy manner. But when I look at this passage, I don't see Paul trying to keep people from the table. I see him trying to make more room. Absolutely. He's trying to get more people to the table, not less. And, and I do think there is wisdom in saying, look, let's not just do this out of ritual. Let's come to the table and uh, and you can talk more about what this could look like, but let's be aware of the body and the blood. Let's be aware of the gospel and not just be doing this flippantly. I think that's wisdom. But if you are not a believer and you decide the day of at a church service, at New Life Church, I want to follow Jesus with my whole life, before you have to talk to any pastor or anyone else or any other yeah. person next to you, you come to the table, you take and eat and you drink and you remember that mm-hmm. Jesus gave his life for you and you choose to follow him. Yeah. I don't want anyone restricted from the table because they feel like I, I just, you know, I don't know how to do this right or I, I'm not allowed because I grew up in a different tradition. Um, the, the qualification there is, do you recognize Jesus as the Lord and Savior of your life? Yeah. And I mean, you even mentioned a new Christian coming to the table. There's room at the table and we are all the newest Christian to oldest Christian. 
we are all coming to the table together. Absolutely. Because we're all sinners saved by grace and we're all broken. And so Paul, I, I really believe he's like leveling out even like a power dynamic in this passage. Sure. Uh, we even see um, this in church history uh, in um, before the Reformation, um, probably even some after, those who were wealthy, the nobles, kings, um, they would receive communion privately rather than with all the people where the ground should be level right before the cross. Absolutely. And, and right, because of hospitality, who, who you're hospitable to, who you right. accept at your table, there's an equalizing yes. thing there. And it's no, it's no mistake when, when Jesus says take and eat, that that corresponds back to, you know, Genesis three, whenever Adam and the, and, and the first woman take and eat, uh, from the tree of the knowledge mm-hmm. of good and evil, right? They're, they're coming under the hospitality of the snake in this first sin, but there is a, there is a renewal of, of coming under the hospitality of Jesus. Everyone's sitting at his table with him hmm. uh, at, at the communion table that happens when we, when we take and eat. Yeah. Come. Come to the table. Come. And uh, so as you are invited to the table uh, at New Life, uh, I often like to say this. Um, there's three different postures that have been very helpful for me. One we've briefly touched on, but I want to first talk about this idea of remembrance. And, uh, one of the ways that I know a lot of people, I know even for myself for many years, when I came to the table, I treated it like a funeral service. I came to remember the death of Christ rather than what the death of Christ and resurrection means Mm -hmm. and so, and how it's changed me. So, um, Kyle, you've heard me use this example many times, but so Paul in first Corinthians, he uses this word, um, for remembrance. It's the Greek word anamnesis. So it's literally to bring to the forefront of your mind, like to the very, like, like the very beginning or like to the very forefront of your thoughts and how you're thinking and like, you're always thinking about it. So there's a, um, and within, so we're bringing it forward in our thoughts and then there's a way, here's another way that we look at how we remember. So, We might remember things in history. So, uh, Kyle, I remember, um, the first time we went out to get lunch together, we went to Blimpy Burger in Ann Arbor. A sacred meal. A very sacred meal. Best burgers in town. Um, they were doing smash burgers. Because they were the worst. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) They were the first people to do smash burgers around here. So if you're into that, but so that's a moment in history. But we also, like, we both have kids. Uh, We might say to our kids before they go over to a friend's house or uh, away for a weekend or whatever, um, uh, before they get out of the car or you let them go somewhere, hey, remember who you are. Remember what I've taught you. Remember your name. And when we go to the table, that's the type of remembrance we want to have. We remember what Jesus has done in us. We remember how that's changed us and what it's made me into and how I ought to act moving forward. And, uh, that to me is powerful. Um, uh, that as we approach the table, we should have that level of remembrance. Yeah. And I, you keep saying remember over and over again. Yeah. And I love that. Uh, I mean, it's on all those communion tables and at, at a lot of churches. It sure is. It either says, says do this in remembrance or this if is, you don't like to talk in normal English, this do in remembrance. Absolutely. Uh, and, you know, we're, we're talking about an English word, remember. Um, but I, I like to think of the opposite of remember not as forgetting. 
but uh, mm-hmm. as dismember. Keep going. Okay. So uh, dismember versus remember. And we live in an age where the cultural fruits that are being produced right now come from the, the root belief that God is dead. That, that, that God himself has been, been deconstructed, in a mm-hmm. sense, dismembered. And in the same way that the two on the road to Emmaus had misunderstood the death of God in their yeah. times and Jesus dying on the cross, I think we too are in a time when people have misunderstood the death of God, that he is not dead, that he is very much alive. Amen. And, and in a time when people are deconstructing and tearing apart and taking apart a lot of things, um, rendering many things meaningless that, that used to perhaps be meaningful to them, there is a moment where we come to a table and we take all the things that have been dismembered in the story of the gospel and we mm. remember them. Mm. We pull them back together and we remember in a, in a holistic way, not in a, not in a sort of um, stringent, strict, we have to explain it way either. And in that sense, we honor the sort of spirit of, of, of we're in a time where like, let's not try to over explain things, right? Yeah. Or let's not just go back to enlightenment rationalism where we have to pin everything down. Um, so we, we, we respect that, but we're also in a mysterious way where we're remembering putting back together the message of God at the table and, and recognizing that he is very much alive. Yeah. Uh, not in just in general, but in us as yes. well. Yes. You use that word holistic. And I mean, our context here in Ann Arbor, university of Michigan, we it's a very academic uh, culture we live in and we like to try and explain everything. And this act of worship, is we, we can make attempts to explain and but also it is holistic it is part of our heart soul mind strength and all four of those things come together at the communion table when we uh when we eat and drink if if i had to just kind of say okay what do we do with all of this stuff all this mystery all these things that we just walk through is can we just approach the communion table as often as we do with a sense of awe and wonder that, that God is so big and so loving and, and is so close and intimate and and wants to be with us and just be in awe of who Jesus is and what he has done and how that is actively getting into us and impacting our lives Mm -hmm. uh, as often as we meet together. Um, I, I think if that's the only thing that comes out of this, is a, is a renewed sense of awe and wonder as people yeah. come to worship at the table. That would be wonderful. Yeah. Amen. I echo Kyle, what you're saying about awe and wonder. It, if for all of you listening, as you approach the practice of worship at the table, we, I, I pray that you will experience an awe and wonder, uh, and out of that, because of that, you'd also have a sense of gratitude for what Jesus has done. And when we go to the table, we, there is that sense of thanksgiving. I mean, even the Passover meal was a, a thanksgiving meal in a lot of ways. We Americans, we're mostly Americans who are uh, probably listening to this. We, I feel like I've heard from a lot of friends who they, it's probably their favorite holiday is Thanksgiving. Now it has, uh, the least amount of, um, family drama maybe for some people, (laughs) but Thanksgiving, we, we approach that table with Thanksgiving. And then because of what Christ has done, and we've used this word, remember what, how it's changed us, it changes how we act now. And so when we, we, it gives us a mission, it gives us, a purpose. So when we go to the table and we reacquaint ourselves with what Christ has done, it then reorders our steps and how we move into the world that we are being sent out into the world. And, um, I love that for you, Kyle. I love that for me. I love that for our church. And I, I pray that that will be the case for, for all of us in our worship community. Amen. Amen. It's all right there. Worship community. Emission, 
right there at the table. Amen. Thanks for joining us today, and it is our prayer that you will join us for gathered worship at New Life Church or wherever you have a church home, and that you will worship with a deeper fervency and understanding of our God as he invites you into deeper relationship with him. Grace and peace be with you.